But you can take your Bibles now and turn them to Psalm 44. Psalm 44. I don't know if you wonder ever about why, uh, why I choose the scripture reading passages that I choose and whether or not they correspond to my message, but I can assure you that they do, or at least that's my goal. Uh, and I believe that what we read this morning from Mark 4 does correspond to Psalm 44, at least the sentiment here. Uh, Psalm 44 is an interesting passage of Scripture. Before we begin, I'd like to just pray and ask the Lord's blessing uh, and help uh, as, we, as we read it and as we study it together. So let's pray and ask the Lord to bless His Word and our time in it this morning. Heavenly Father, again, we are uh, thankful that You have given us Your Word. I'm thankful for the uh, truths that are contained in it and how You use Your Word to bring us to yourself, to introduce us to you, to, to show us what you are like, to show us what we are like, and then, Lord, to strengthen us, to guide us, and ultimately to transform us. And Jesus said, and Jesus prayed uh, that you would sanctify your disciples by your truth, and your word is truth. And so we ask this morning that you would sanctify us. Make us holy. Transform us and change us to be what you want us to be through the power of your word. Help us to see the important truths that are brought up in Psalm 44. Help us to understand them. And Lord, not just intellectually to understand them, but help us to be molded and shaped by them so that we can walk with you this week and be pleasing to you. I pray that you'd help me as I speak say only what you'd have me to say, and give all the glory to you in Jesus' name, amen. You know, it's interesting, when you think about how the world works, uh, we come up with some basic principles of how things operate, right? And we all do this, and we kind of have a way that uh, we understand that the world works pretty much throughout the whole world, you know? When you think about it, it seems fairly obvious that God created this world according to certain principles of order, and that people who live in harmony with those principles and that order tend to be blessed, tend to have an easier time and more successful than those who operate contrary to the way that things work. Right? That seems like a pretty basic principle. We see this all around us. The crop that you harvest depends on the seeds that you sow, right? So we basic principle of how the world operates, right? We see people who defy God's created order. Right? And we expect that because they're defying the way the world works, right, that they're going to have a hard time of it. We also... Uh, we also expect that when they have a hard time of it, because they are going against God's order and the way that he has made things, we kind of figure that, that God is not going to come to their help, right? God is not going to rescue them when they get themselves into trouble because they have gone against his order. They, they brought it on themselves. Right? Generally speaking, we think that is true. But the, the opposite is also true, right? To, to say it in a positive way. That if we obey God and we follow His order for the world, that generally speaking, that seems to work out pretty well, right? And so in the, in the practical, in the physical realm, uh, you know, the Scripture says that, that God has ordained work as the means by which you and I will eat. And so, generally speaking, those people that work hard and are diligent, generally speaking, they have enough to eat, and they generally do all right in this world, because that's the way the world works. And it doesn't matter what country you're in or what part of the world you're in, 
generally speaking, we all see that that's true. Is everybody with me so far? That seemed to be legitimate. Okay. Now, God also has a moral order for the world, right? And we would say the same thing is true, that when we follow God's moral order, generally speaking, we can expect things to go well, and when they don't, we can expect God to help, right? People who, who obey God, who follow His moral order of how things are supposed to be done, have an expectation that when they get into trouble, God is going to be there for them. Is everybody tracking with me so far? Okay. You all in agreement with me so far. This is, this is how this works. Not only that, but we actually have promises in Scripture, right? Uh, I'm thinking like, uh, uh, is it Ephesians 6 where... Paul quotes from the Old Testament and he says, you know, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long upon the earth. He says this is the first commandment with promise. There's a promise from God, right? Honor your father and mother and you will have the blessing of God, right? Um, you know, I'm mindful of Hebrews chapter 13 where it says that Jesus says he's, you know, the same yesterday, today, forever. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We have promises from God, right? And so we have reason to believe that when we trust in God and when we obey Him and when we follow Him and when we do things the way He has ordained that things should be done, that generally that's going to work out. And that God is going to be with us and help us and be on our side. He's going to come to our defense when we need it. Okay. Now, some of you may already be thinking a step ahead of me, though, because you're stopping and you're saying, wait a second, what about Job, right? Isn't Job a great example of someone for whom that principle doesn't fit, right? A man that God himself declares to be righteous, upright, who loves God and hates evil. And yet Job finds his life in complete and utter turmoil and destruction. What about Jeremiah? A faithful young man whom God gives a message and says, go and preach it. And Jeremiah is afraid, but he does it anyways. And he ends up, you know, he ends up imprisoned, he ends up mistreated, thrown into a broken down well, a cistern. Um, his words that he writes, just faithfully trying to say what God told him, and then he gets, the king takes him and destroys them, and you know, all these things. Well, what about Jeremiah? Wait a second. What about Jesus? Right? Here's another great example of someone who was obedient to God and faithful and trusted God. There's lots of examples in the Scripture, right? Of people who obeyed God and trusted God and suffered. Abel, for instance, was murdered. Why? Because he followed God's commands, right? Wasn't that why Abel was murdered? Because he simply did what God wanted him to do. And Cain became jealous and Cain killed him. Why? What did Abel do wrong? Nothing. Noah! Noah was mocked. He was ridiculed for his obedience to the Lord in making an ark and preaching the judgment that was coming. Right? Joseph sold into slavery. Job lost all his possessions, his health, even his children because of his righteousness. Jeremiah was imprisoned and mistreated. Ezekiel lost his wife. And he wasn't even able to mourn her death because God said it's a sign to Israel. Jesus was crucified as an innocent man. Peter, James, and John, all of the apostles really were imprisoned, beaten, and ultimately martyred for preaching the gospel. There are many, many examples of righteous men and women who suffered innocently throughout Scripture. And that doesn't include the hundreds and thousands more who have suffered since the dawn of the church age 2,000 years ago. So... We're faced with a question, but the question is not, can the innocent suffer? We know the answer to that question. Of course, 
the innocent can suffer. The question really is this. This is the question we're faced with, and I, well, let me just give you the question first. It's this. Can a God who allows even the righteous to suffer be worthy of our loyalty and devotion? Can a God who allows even the righteous to suffer be worthy of our loyalty and devotion? You don't have to live very long in this life before you realize that the righteous suffer and sometimes suffer innocently. Experience teaches us that. But you know what's interesting to me, and this is just, I think it's incredibly phenomenal. You realize that God's word gets it. You know, people, um, I was thinking about this yesterday, people uh, sometimes run away from or turn away from the faith in Christ with an objection. And the objection that they have sometimes is, well, uh, you know, it just doesn't seem worth it. It's too hard. There's people who are suffering innocently. Therefore, this God that you say you worship can't be the God for me. If he allows innocent people to suffer, then I can't follow him. There's people who stumble at this question. Can God, who allows even the righteous to suffer, be worthy of our loyalty and devotion? And there are many, many people today that if you were to talk to them, people who say, I don't believe in God and I don't worship God, many people today, if you talk to them and ask them why, they would say, well, it's because God, this God that you claim to worship, oh, Christians, this God allows innocent people to suffer. But I want to suggest something to you. That if you don't realize that, if that all of a sudden becomes a revelation to you that causes you to walk away from the faith, then you're not reading your Bible. Sorry, I'm not trying to be callous or, or, or uh, you know, in your face of this, but you're just not paying attention. Okay, The Bible gets it that this is an issue, and we read Psalm 44, and it's all over Psalm 44. Okay. And so I want to look at this together this morning. This is the issue that we're faced with. This is not something new. That some, you know, 16-year-old high school student who's got all the answers in the world all of a sudden figures out that, oh, this God of Christianity lets righteous, innocent people suffer. Well, then that whole thing must be a a sham. (laughs) Listen, 3,000 years ago, somebody wrote this down because this is not a new issue. And God knows it. And he put it in his word Because there's no reason for us to stumble at this question. There's no reason for this question to shatter our faith or to even make it uh, difficult for us to continue in the faith. In fact, there is hope and help here. This is the question we're faced with. By the way, Psalm 44 is the second of three psalms that begin with this same heading, a contemplation or a masquil of the sons of Korah. We already looked at Psalms 42 and 43 connected together. And then Psalm 44. And then Psalm 45. They all have the same heading. I I don't think it's an accident, actually, that these psalms are put where they're put together here. Okay? Because it seems as if the, the writers here of Psalm 44 have read and have taken to heart the words of Psalm 42 and 43. Remember that refrain that we heard over and over and over again three times, three times, in those two psalms that we looked at last week. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. Let's look at Psalm 44 and see how the community of faith takes this statement to heart and see how uh, this plays out. Psalm 44, let's read there. You can just, um, well, no, let's read it together. Let's read it. We're going to read the first eight verses together. It's up here on the screen, or you can read it in your Bible. The psalmists write this, We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us, the deeds you did in their days, in days of old. You drove out the nations with your hand. 
but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples and cast them out. For they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them. But it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, because you favored them. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push down our enemies. Through your name we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. But you have saved us from our enemies, and have put to shame those who hated us. In God we boast all day long, and praise your name forever. Salah. These first eight verses of Psalm 44, I, I have a real simple outline here for you. Uh, I call this faith embraced. Faith embraced. I think it's interesting here, you notice right at the beginning, we have heard with our ears. We've heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us. There is a testimony of faith right here at the beginning of the psalm. But I want you to notice something about it. Where did it come from? Where did the psalmist hear about God and His goodness and His greatness? Where did the psalmist hear about it? Help me out. Where did he hear about it? Okay, from his fathers, he says. From the fathers. He says, God, the things that you did in their days were told to us. Now, this is not surprising if you read the book of Deuteronomy, especially Deuteronomy chapter 6. You see that God instructed the Israelites to tell their children what he had done, right? You know, when they rise up, when they sit down, line upon line, precept upon precept, teach them what God has done. Parents, you're supposed to pass on the faith to your children. That's what God was saying. Parents, you're supposed to teach your children the, uh, the, the truth about what God has done for you. The great things God has done. Now, what things is he focused on here? Well, you can see it there in verse 2. You drove out the nations with your hand. The, the, the focus in verse 2 here, by the way, it's interesting. Again, very, very typical. that when, it, when in, in the Scriptures in the Old Testament, when they want to recount what God has done, they go back to the time of the Exodus. That's kind of normal. But in this case, the focus is not on coming out of Egypt. The focus is on going into the land of Canaan, right? Because the Israel had come out of Egypt under Moses, and then Joshua led them into the land of Canaan. And what he says is, God, you drove out the nations with your hand, right? But them you planted. Well, who's them? Well, it's not the nations. It's the fathers, okay? So you drove out the nations, but you planted the fathers. And then he says, you afflicted the peoples, that's the nations again, and you cast them out. That word cast, I think here, has the idea of spread them out. And I don't think it's referring to the nations being cast out of Canaan. It's referring to God planting His people in the land of Canaan and then causing them to grow and spread out. Kind of like a vine planted, and then as it grows, it begins to move. You guys have seen vines that do that, right? You know, different kind of plants. Um, you know, you plant uh, gourds or pumpkins or zucchinis or something, and what do they do? They just travel, you know. They go everywhere. They don't stay in one spot. They begin to reach out and spread, and that's kind of the idea here. God planted His people in the land of Canaan, and then they spread, and that was God's doing. He says, you did this. You drove out the nations, but you planted us. You planted your people. You gave them root and you established them. And the emphasis here is all on what God has done. Verse 3 is very clear. They did not gain possession of it by their own sword. Their arm did not save them. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, your face, that you turned to look on them. You favored them. That word favored is very, very important. In the book of Deuteronomy, 
God promises to give Israel the land of Canaan because he loves them. And he speaks about his love for them. This is a different word, and I think it's important here. Now, does God love his people? Yes. But sometimes we might get the idea that God loves people because of something in them that makes them lovable. Right? And, and, and theologically, we know that's not true, but we, but we still sometimes buy into that idea, okay? Uh, and, and we act that way. But here, it says something different. God didn't do that because there was something in Israel that caused him to love them. God did it because he favored them. It's a word of grace. This was the grace of God. It was something God did because he favored them. It was not in them. It had nothing to do with them. It was everything to do with God. He gave his people the land. He did it, not their sword, not their arm. It was his sword and his arm. God's the one who did it. And and get this, this is so important because the psalmist is saying, this is what we were told. I think about this and I think, man, his parents... And and the people that were in his life, that spoke into his life, spoke truth to him. What a testimony. What a testimony from the psalmist that, hey, I grew up in this congregation, and you know what I heard growing up? I heard about God's grace. Wouldn't it be great if every young person who came through the doors of this church and has come through the doors of this church in the last 50 years, could go out of here saying, the one thing that I was told over and over again, the one thing that I was taught in this church growing up, was God's grace for His people. That is a testimony of faithfulness on the part of His parents. They did their job well. The fathers did their job well. And I could say this to you too, by the way, by simple observation in the Old Testament, we know that this was a rare thing in Israel. And by our own experience, we also know this is not an easy thing, right? You know that it is not easy for parents to pass on their faith to their children. You know that it is not easy to do that. It's not easy to speak and to to teach our children in such a way that the lesson and the message that they come away from us is God is gracious. That's the message the psalmist heard from the fathers. But that is not the normal way. That's not an easy thing. But I want you to see something else here. It's very important because uh, it's not just that the fathers were faithful. They were, clearly. But notice something else. Look at what happens in verse 4. There's a transition from verse 3 to verse 4. In verses 4 through 8, it's a different tone. In fact, it's much more personal. You'll notice in this psalm there's a transition from the uh, plural uh, pronouns to the use of singular pronouns. From you and us to me and I. And here's what we see in verse 4. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Verse 6. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. Now, there's plural pronouns here too in verses 5 and 7. So it's not just one person speaking. But the sense that we get here is that you have the the king or, or whoever this is that's speaking and the rest of the nation. And this is back and forth. Okay? But there's very much a personal sense to this. Understand something. The psalmist, he heard from his fathers about the grace of God, but it became his. You see, this is the thing that's a challenge because parents can pass on their faith or can tell about their faith to their children, can speak of the faith, can teach them, can can instruct them, can point them to the truth, can tell them all of the great things that God has done, but at some point... The faith has to go from being the Father's faith to being my faith, right? There has to be a transition where it's not just the Father's faith. It's not just, God, what you did in the Father's day. It's my faith. God, what you have done in my day. Notice what he says here. You are my king. Command victories for Jacob. 
There's a great sense of, of humility and submission here. God, you are my king. But then he continues, or they continue, through you we will push down our enemies. Through your name we will trample those who rise up against us. There's a great sense of faith here. God, in your power and your strength, we will be victorious. And then there's a declaration. I'm not going to trust in myself. Verse 6, I don't trust in my bow, not my sword. But then look at verse 7, and this is important. But you have saved us from our enemies and have put to shame those who hated us. You see, it was not just relying on what God did in the past. Not just relying on what God did for the fathers. Yes, God, you did great things in bringing your people out of Egypt and in, in bringing them into the land of Canaan and establishing them there. But that's all ancient history. More importantly, God, in my life, I have experienced this from you. You have saved us. You have put to shame our enemies. There is a personal experience of faith. And so what we see in these opening verses is we see that the psalmist and the people of Israel at this time, and by the way, we don't know when this time was in Israel. There's no way for us to trace, and scholars argue all the time. There's all sorts of different opinions about where Psalm 50 or 44 fits in the history of Israel. But the truth of the matter is, the fathers spoke the truth about the grace of God and their sons listened and accepted it and adopted the faith as their own. This is successful transmission of the faith from one generation to the next, and it is a rare and difficult thing, just as much in our day as it was in theirs. I'm reminded of this all the time in Scripture. The book of Judges provides example after example. One generation rose up and it says, as long as, they, as long as that judge remained alive, the people remained faithful. But when he died, there arose a generation that did not remember the works. And they drifted away from God and they fell into sin and then judgment came and all that happened. The cycle over and over and over again. And it was a generational thing. One generation would come back to God, repent, and walk in fellowship with Him, and they failed to pass it on to the next generation. And you can read through the books of, 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 of 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and Kings, and Chronicles, and you read about all of the kings in Israel and Judah, and especially in Judah where you see some godly kings rise up, and then they have sons who are wicked and corrupt. And you say, how did that happen? Didn't this godly father teach his sons? It's not easy. It's not easy to pass on the faith from one generation to the next. Because they have to, it has to be more than just what the fathers speak of. And the fathers speak of the grace of God, but the sons have to believe it and it have to, has to become personal for them. They have to adopt it. They have to embrace the faith themselves. And so it's not enough if our parents are saved. It's not enough if... Our, 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 you know, other, other people are believers and they speak into our lives. We have to listen to the truth and you have to listen to the truth and you have to embrace it yourself. The grace of God that He favors His people. And so you have to believe for yourself. You have to receive it. Embrace the faith for yourself. It has to become yours so that you can say, God, I have experienced it. I, it's not just what I've heard stories of what you've done. I've seen it for myself. And God can do that. The incredible thing is how God can start over when that line of faith is broken. And God can break into a family, into a life where, where, where there's no one who's, uh, who, who knows God and no one who really truly follows God. And God can break in and can can transform that family and that life. My dad is a great example of that. He grew up in a nominally religious home. Went to a church that didn't preach the gospel. He was 16 years old. There was a girl in school that he really liked and wanted to go out with, and she wouldn't go out with him unless he came to church with her. So he went to youth group with her and heard the gospel. He got saved. 
and he was going to be an architect. And he couldn't speak. He stuttered, and he couldn't speak in front of people. And he was going to be an architect because that's what he was interested in. And 16 years old, he got saved. And he brought his brother to church with him, and he got saved. And then his younger brother and younger brother, both of his younger brothers got saved. Come to find out, his parents were saved, but they, they were never faithful. They never really lived for the Lord. They never really went to good church. They just kind of went through life. They were nominal Christians. But it was like God kind of broke through into that family and completely transformed my father's life and the direction of his life and everything about it. And I am a recipient of that because he spoke the truth of the faith into my life. But there still had to come a point where I heard it and I took it for myself. And I said, okay, it's not just mom and dad's faith, it's mine. And I remember one time I had an argument, this, is, this won't surprise you, I had an argument with a, uh, well, I had an argument with a, with a pastor and pastor's wife at, at a church, it wasn't my church, it was my girlfriend's church at the time, and uh, we were arguing back and forth about some things, and, and it, really, this, it really irritated me because the pastor's wife said to me, you only believe that because your mom and dad told you that. And all oh, that really irritated me, and most of you know me well enough to know that. That doesn't fly, okay? Because the truth of the matter is, and I, please don't misunderstand me, I'm not denigrating mom and dad said so. That's important. I, I learned the faith from my parents. I did. But it's my faith. I don't go around believing and saying, well, I believe this because mom and dad said so. No. I believe it because the truth of the word of God. Because God says so. If my parents said it, it's only because they were being faithful to him. Okay? So I don't believe it because they said so. But... They introduced me to it. The faith has become my own. That's important. It's vital. It has to be that way. I'm never going to get done with this psalm. That's only the first point. Oh, I love it in verse 8, though. I love what the psalmist says. In God we boast all day long and praise your name forever. Oh, to brag on God. What has God done for you in your life that you can boast in. N not yourself, right? Not, well, I'm this great, or I've done that. No, but what has God done that you can boast in? That's what the psalmist is saying. We're going to boast in you, Lord, all day long. That's what we're going to do. And so we have this faith. We have this relationship with God. We embrace the faith. We hear the truth, we, we hear about the grace of God, and we want the grace, right? We want God's grace in our life. We want God's favor. And so we believe and we say, yes, Lord, give me your favor and your grace and forgive my sins and, 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 and live through me and transform my life. Yes, Lord, that's what I want. And we expect that when we do that, God now comes to be with us, right? And so God is now on our side, And the realities of life can challenge our faith. In verse 9, we see a very, very strong and abrupt transition. The word in your New King James, and I think the Old King James, is the word but. But now, it's an abrupt change from what we've just seen. I'm going to rejoice in you, I'm going to praise you, I'm going to boast in your name, but now... What? Well, look at what he says in verse 9. But you have cast us off and put us to shame. And you do not go out with our armies. You make us turn back from the enemy. And those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You have given us up like sheep intended for food and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people for next to nothing and are not enriched by selling them. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to all those around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a shaking of the head among people. My dishonor is continually before me. And the shame of my face has covered me. Because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles. Because of the enemy and the avenger. And see, when we embrace the faith that's been passed down to us from the previous generation, 
It isn't very long before we realize that there's a problem and our faith is contradicted. We take hold of God by faith. We trust in Him and His grace. And then we turn around and it's as if God has cast us off. He puts us to shame. Notice what it was. In verse 7, it was, you have put to shame those who hated us. And then in verse 9, but Lord, now you've cast us off and put us to shame. What happened? We've been spoiled. Here, they're talking about a military defeat. You made us turn back from our enemies. You don't go out to battle with us. <laughs> I'm mindful of the, uh, of the, the situation when, uh, when, when uh, Eli was the high priest in Israel and uh, they were going out to battle with the Philistines and they said, oh, we've got a problem. We forgot we left the Ark of the Covenant back. We've got to have that with us, right? We've got to have God with us, right? And so they had because they had this kind of foolish idea that as long as they brought the Ark of the Covenant with them, God was automatically with them. When in fact, they were being wicked and they were ungodly and there was no reason for them to expect God to be with them at all. And so they bring the Ark of the Covenant out there and there's a huge roar that grows up and it says that the Philistines were afraid because they heard the roar and they realized that the Ark of God has come into the Israel camp and they were afraid and they thought we're going to be defeated. But the next day they go to battle and what happens? The Israelites are routed. The Philistines won. They actually take possession of the ark for a time. Of course, that's a little bit of a different situation from this situation we're going to see. But I'm mindful of the fact that if God doesn't go out to battle with them, they lose. Remember, it was not by their sword, not by their uh, bow. It was not their own right hand and their sword that possessed the land. It was God who gave them the land. God who caused them to be spread out and to grow and to, to put in roots in the land. And yet, now when they go out to battle, they say, Here, God, the problem is we go out and you don't come with us. We go out to do the work and we go out to fight the battle and you're not there. And how can we be expected to win in fact, we run, and we're, we're turned back, and we're forced to flee. And we're spoiled. Our, 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 we lose everything to them in battle. You, you know, God, you, you're, like, you, you're treating us like sheep who are intended for food. What? When sheep are intended for food, there's only one end for them, right? That's why they're raised. That's why they're fed. That's why they're tended for one purpose, because they're going to be slaughtered. They're not protected. They're not, no one steps in and says, wait, 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 not this time. Nobody does that. Oh, that's the purpose. Yes, it's time to slaughter them. Okay, let's go do it. It's done. And he says, Lord, that's how you're treating us. You sell your people. He says, for next to nothing. I mean, I, I think you would have an objection to being sold, period, but at least get something for me, right? You know? I mean, that's the idea, right? I mean, aren't I worth something to you? Lord, aren't, you're not enriched. You, do, you don't get anything back for this. You sell us as if we're worthless. It's not just the, the, the loss on the, on the battlefield, but then verses 13 through 16, what we see is the, the shame and the reproach. He talks about the, 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 the fact that they have become a... a a mockery. He talks about the derision, the shame, the, 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 the fact that their name as a people has become a mockery. People laugh and they scorn them and they laugh at the idea. When you get the picture here, here's the Israelites. They have said, Lord, Yahweh is our God. We are faithful to Him. We covenant with Him. We'll obey Him. We'll follow Him. And then all of these other nations are winning in battle. And as they're winning, they're singing their victory songs. And they're laughing at how these people trusted in Yahweh and He has not saved them. These people have trusted in the Lord and the Lord has let them down. How foolish, how ridiculous. And so they're the object of scorn. Okay. 
and they are reviled, reproached, and ashamed. This is a challenge. This is a challenge to the faith, right? Lord, we trusted in you. And then we went out to battle and we got beat. And you weren't there to help us. And then we come back and all we hear are the taunts and the laughter and the mocking and the scars. What kind of faith is that? What kind of God is that? Should we even be bothered to continue with Him? This is the point at which some people really have a hard time. But notice there's more. Because in verse 17 and following, we have, well, an interesting development. Look at what it says in verse 17. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you, nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. But you have severely broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a foreign God, would not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. I think what we have here is the faith question. The faith question. The psalmist begins to question the Lord. Because he can find no point of unfaithfulness in his own life. The people of Israel, as they examine their lives before the Lord and their commitment to the covenant, they don't find any unfaithfulness. Now you say, come on, we're all sinners, we're all guilty. But that's not what he's talking about here. Don't, please don't misunderstand here. He's not suggesting some sort of sinless perfection. Notice how they speak of it. Verse 17, we've not dealt falsely with your covenant. The covenant that God made with them included the assumption that they were going to sin, didn't it? What did God instruct them to do when they sinned? According to the covenant that they made or that God made with them, what was the instruction for them to do when they sinned? Okay? Bring the sacrifice. Within the covenant itself, there was a way to deal with sin. So this is not saying, God, we have been sinless and perfect. No. We have sinned, but when we've sinned, we've done what your covenant says. So what they're saying is, we have been faithful. Notice verse 18, our heart has not turned back. Within our hearts, we have not broken your covenant. We've not turned away from you in our hearts. But more than that, or, or following that, nor have our steps departed from your way. Lord, we have been faithful. We made this, you know, you made this covenant with us. We have entered into covenant with you. We've trusted you. And we have done what you wanted us to do. We've been faithful. We've kept the covenant. We have been true. But you have broken us, he says. Now, this is not empty bragging and boasting. Look at verse 20. If we had forgotten the name of God or stretched out our hands to a foreign God, would not God search this out? They're not saying, God, we're innocent, and uh, or or, you know, they're they're not saying we're innocent, but but you know, you know, really being deceitful here. They're not trying to cover this up with some sort of false motive or anything like that. They're simply saying, God, you know what's in our hearts, right? I mean, how foolish is it for us to try to lie to God or try to make up something when we're talking to God? Doesn't he know all of the secrets that are in our hearts? So what's the point in trying to fool him? What's the point in trying to pretend that we're something we're not? 
There is no point. And the psalmist understands that. And so I think what we see here, sometimes, and I'll admit, my first response when I read this psalm and I first began to say, my first thought was, no, there's got to be something here. There's got to be something underlying this, you know? Some indication that this is not true. There has to be some sin that God is judging them for. But the more that I considered the psalm, the more that I look at it, I realized, no, this is a genuine, there's a genuineness here, an openness before the Lord. Lord, you know our hearts. You know what we've done. You know where we're at. You know the secrets of our hearts. If there was some deceitfulness here, you would find it because you know all things. Lord, you know that we've been faithful. And so here's where we really come up against You know, between a rock and a hard place, if you will. We have these people who have received and accepted and embraced the faith. And the faith is contradicted by their experience because even though they have been faithful to God, and even though they've trusted God, God has let them fall. And they are suffering. And they are, are at a loss to explain it. If they had been disobedient to God, then they would expect that God would allow them to lose battles. They would expect that God would hand them over to their enemies. That would be expected. That's how it works in the economy of God, right? You do wrong and God judges, or you do wrong and He allows punishment to take place. But what about when you do right? And then suffering comes along. What about when you do right? And then you're handed over to the enemy. What about when you do right? And all you get and all you receive is mocking and scorn and derision and pain and loss and suffering. How are we to understand this? Well, verse 22 is really a key. It's no accident, by the way, that verse 22 is quoted in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul quotes... Psalm 44 and verse 22 in Romans chapter 8. Paul says there that it is for your sake that we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And then Paul says, but in all these things we are more than conquerors. How is it possible How is it possible that we are more than conquerors when we are sheep who are accounted for the slaughter? Maybe there's something else to this. I think the key, I think the key to understanding this is right there at the beginning of verse 22. For your sake, we are killed all the day long. For your sake. Why were the people of Israel suffering this loss and this uh, injustice and this persecution? Why? For His sake. This wasn't punishment. This wasn't God being unjust or unfair. Do you know that the life of faith, that to embrace faith is to embrace suffering? Our Savior, Jesus Christ, suffered. And who more innocently than He? If He indeed suffered righteously, innocently, how much more should we expect to suffer, who have no claim to righteousness and innocence before the Lord, except the righteousness of Christ. That's what Peter says. If Christ suffered, we ought to expect it. Jesus said, don't be surprised. Men hate you because they hate me. And if you belong to me, they're going to hate you too. Don't be surprised. And yet we are, shock of all shocks, when suffering comes along and we say, wait a second, it's not fair, I'm innocent. Yep. Yep. You embrace the faith. 
You follow in the faith that was passed down to you. You see, the oppor- when, when suffering comes into our lives, undeserving, when we're innocent and we yet suffer, it really is an opportunity for us. For those of us who are of the faith. It's an opportunity for us to enter into God. This is how God works in this world. It is for your sake that we are killed all day long, that we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. When you suffer, because of the faith, for the faith, because you trust in the Lord. That's what he's getting at here. That's what the psalmist is revealing here. That the suffering is coming. Yes, they're innocent. Yes, it's undeserving. But the suffering is for the sake of the Lord. It's because they're His people that they suffer. It's because we belong to Christ that we will suffer persecution, mocking, ridicule, scorn. Suffering is not a contradiction to the faith. Not really. It may seem that way. Suffering is confirmation. And so we come to the last portion of the psalm. Verse 23 to 26. And we come across something again that is just astounding. Notice what he says here. Awake! Why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise! Do not cast us off forever. Why did you hide your face and forget your affliction, our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our body clings to the ground. Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. We close the psalm with faith renewed. You know, it's interesting what the psalmist says here. You ever wonder why God allows His people to speak to Him the way that He does? If He's the Almighty King, the sovereign ruler of the universe, could you imagine? Uh, could you imagine a human king or human ruler allowing? The, the peons to come and speak to him this way? Wake up! Why do you sleep? Why do you neglect us? Why do you forget us? Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our suffering? <laughs> I love the mercy of God in that he allows his people to speak to him directly, boldly, to declare what is on their heart. Now, does the psalmist really believe that God is asleep? No. Psalm 121, verse 4. He who keeps you shall neither slumber nor sleep. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. God does not sleep. But doesn't it seem that way at times? Doesn't it seem like God is asleep? And you're in the midst of trial and suffering and difficulties. And where's God? We come back to Mark chapter 4, and Jesus is laying there in the bottom of the boat, and he's asleep, and the disciples are, 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 are rowing and they're bailing and they're freaking out because they think they're going to die. And they should look down and realize that Christ is with us. We're fine. Nothing can happen to him. He's the Son of God. And yet they're not in that spot of faith. Lord, don't you care that we die, they say. The God of heaven allows his children to speak to him that way. Wow. What mercy. What mercy that he doesn't rebuke them 
for the way they speak to him, for their tone of voice. <laughs> As a parent, I don't know I would let my kid come and say something like that without saying, hey, wait, 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 wait. Rephrase that. You want to talk to me? You know, speak respectfully. <laughs> and God listened. His people cry out to him. And the disciples, Lord, don't you care that we die? And he says, peace. Be still. And instantly the waves are still and the wind ceases. And he does rebuke them. Not for their tone of voice. And he says, have you so little faith? Trust me. That's what we come back to here at the end of the psalm. The psalmist who cries out, why are you hiding your face? Why are you turning away? Our soul is bowed down to the dust. He says, our body clings to the ground. The idea is here, I'm casting myself prostrate on the ground and begging for your help. And he closes in verse 26. Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. Does it seem strange to you that the psalmist would pray for mercy and help to the very God who has not yet responded to any of their cries? Why keep on reaching out to Him? Why keep on praying? Why keep on seeking the face of God when He has an answer? Why continue? Why persist? Can I give you an answer to that question? Because he's the only one there. Where else can you go than to the God who is love? Notice the appeal here in verse 26. Redeem us for your mercy's sake. The word mercies, it's the Hebrew word chesed. We've talked about this a lot. Chesed is God's covenant love. It's the love that moves him to come to the help of his people. It's the love that God has revealed to his people. When he, when he made covenant with them in the Old Testament, he said, this is who I am. I am the God who is loving. I said, that's what I am. And so the, the psalmist says, God, you said that you're loved, so be loving to me and redeem me. Help me. I'm crying out to you. Where else are we going to go? You see, this is not a psalm. This is not a word for the skeptic, for the unbeliever. I, we left the unbeliever all the way back at verse 8 because only the first eight verses, listen, the testimony of faith from the fathers, you've got to make it your own. That, you don't do that. You can't go any further. Okay. The rest of this only applies to those of us who have received the faith that was passed down to us from someone else, the faithful word of God that was spoken, and we received it and we trusted in Christ. And now because we're of the faith, we have this conflict, right? God, I received you. I trust in you. Now you've got to help me, but I don't see what's happening here. You're not helping. Now I have the struggle and the conflict and the, the, the questioning and all of these things, and yet in that, God has revealed himself to me to be love. So God, if that's who you are, that's who you say you are then that's what I'm going to pray to and that's what I'm going to pray for. Where else can we go? Is there anywhere else to turn? And the answer is no. There is no other God. There is no other one who can help us in our time of need. So when God seems to be asleep and silent and absent, what do we do? We cry out to Him and we continue, we persist, and we, 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 we cast ourselves in the dust, if, as you will. And we pray, help us and redeem us for your love's sake. For your mercy's sake. We have a choice. There's a great deal of parallel between Psalm 44 and the book of Job. It's not an accident. Both of them deal with the question of whether a God who would allow a righteous person to suffer can be trusted, can be worshipped. And both of them answer in the affirmative. Yes, 
God can and should be trusted and worshipped even in the midst of our suffering. Why? Because He is loving and merciful in His very nature. It is who He is. It is how He has revealed Himself to us. Because that is true, then our suffering is not purposeless. It is for His sake. Because He is merciful, our suffering provides us with an opportunity to glorify Him in the midst of our agony. And when we do that, we transform our pain from meaningless to meaningful in light of eternity with Christ. So you can vent your rage. You can seek revenge. You can play the victim when you suffer wrongfully. That's certainly how our world tends to respond. Or you can praise and worship God who is your king and embrace the values of eternity. That is your choice. Let's pray.